Coming up next, the booketing discusses one of the most delightful surprises of our entire careers. Watership down! Everybody. Welcome to the Booketing. My name is Nathan Albers, and I am your humble and obedient host. Why was Watership Down a surprise? Well, owing to many factors, but I think the primary one, if I had to put my finger on it, would be I'm an idiot. I'm a dumb, fat idiot. And when you're a dumb, fat idiot, it's really easy to be surprised by things. I mean, the more moronic you are, the easier it is to be surprised things. Oh, wow. Look at that grass. It's green. What a surprise. Wow. That sky is blue. Whoa. Didn't expect that because I'm a moron. That is like babies. Babies are morons. Wow. You put your hands over yourself or over your face. Where did you go? Whoa, there you are, and you're saying peekaboo. This is amazing. Hi, hello, how are you? I love you. You're my parent. This is great. Where did you go? What on earth happened? I'm a dumb baby. I don't understand. Whoa, hey, it's you. <laughs> this is great. What a great... Huh? Where'd you go? Where on earth did... Hey! That's what babies do. Because they're dumb. Babies are not as smart as adults. That is... Just one of the things, one of the guiding lights that you have to have in life is babies and and kids in general, even teenagers, aren't as smart as adults. Because adults have lived longer and accumulated more wisdom and stuff like that. I don't know. I was just watching Moana the other day. You know, that Disney movie, Moana. It's all about how adults are dumb and Moana has to, like, follow her heart and... Not listen to the adults, not listen to the authority figures, which was a nice break from formula for Disney, because usually Disney movies are all about obey authority, learn to put aside your personal desires for the greater good. That's basically what Disney, the Disney formula, (laughs) I'm being sarcastic, of course, folks. Hey, Watership Down, what a wonderful book. This is The Booketing. I'm Nathan, your humble and obedient host, and I'm just riffing in the studio by myself. Jake and Brandon couldn't be bothered. Now, Jake's on vacation. He's at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Let's not joke around. That's where he is. And Brandon's at some courthouse doing tax documents or something like that. He's working. But you know what I say? Who needs them? We're going to have a great time talking about Watership Down. Just me and you, the beautiful and or handsome listener. Let's talk about Watership Down. So this book really did surprise me. It is a wonderful adventure story. And I have so many questions about it. So many things I want to discuss with Jake and Brandon, but they're not here. So let me lay out some of my thoughts about this. will be an interesting way to do it. I mean, I hope it is because this is what we're doing. Let me lay out some of my thoughts about the book and some of my questions about the book. And then we'll maybe, Lord willing, we'll have Jake and Brandon on and they'll answer some of the dang questions that I have. 
So uh, I think my main question, given the scope of Richard Adams' career, which we talked about in great detail last week in our context episode, you can hear Brandon give all the details on that. What was Richard Adams actually thinking? What was he trying to do with this book? What was his goal? I mean, obviously, he wanted to tell a good story. He wanted to tell an adventure story. But how fixated was he on the ecological stuff? Like, how much is this just a direct slap in the face of man, the only animal that oversteps its bounds and treads upon the domain of nature and tramples things down and smokes cigarettes and uses machines and doesn't live in harmony with everything else, but exercise of dominion over it, biblically speaking. Uh, I mean, was he just mad about that? Was that was that what he wanted to do? Or, or did he really just want to tell like a, a good fantasy kind of in the in the Tolkien mold, like a, a Campbellian adventure story? Like if, if, if you had, and this answer may well be out there. I haven't looked, but I think it's kind of interesting to speculate about it because the book feels very thematically dense. It feels like it has things to say. It has stuff on its mind. And yet, it's very simple. On the surface, it's very simple what happens. And there's not a lot of obvious more. I mean, heroism's good, community's good, uh, tyranny's bad. You know, you could make a political allegory out of the different Warrens. But if Richard Adams just had to boil it down to one thing that he wanted people to take away from this book, what was it? Uh, I don't know. Maybe most of you listening won't sympathize with that. You'll just be like, uh, he wanted to write a good story. Or uh, he obviously wanted to do the ecological thing. But I don't know. You know what I mean? Like the book feels like it has a lot on its mind. That's the, that's, that's the only way I know how to put it. It feels like it has a lot on its mind. And I'm not sure what all that is. It's very dry. Not in the sense of being boring, but like a dry British wit, kind of dry, restrained. It holds back. It doesn't show you all of its cards. It doesn't go out of its way to pound you in the head with its theme. And, and except for maybe you could argue with the ecological stuff. But if it wants to make a point about uh, politics or, or about the hero's journey or about what constitutes heroism, or I mean, I mean, all this stuff is kind of there and implicit, and you could very easily map out the world's crappiest Sunday school based on this book. You know, if you're just like some hack that wanted to pretend like every book equally lent itself to making trite morals for idiots, you could easily do that with this book. It's got plenty of grist for that particular mill. <sighs> but what exactly did Richard Adams want us to take away from this book? That is a question that I have, and I do not have the answer to that question, but it intrigues me. If Jake and Brandon were here, they'd be like, ah, here's the answer, Nathan. And they'd give me the answer, but they're not here, so they will not be doing that. Uh, let's talk about what this book is. It's a wonderful adventure story. It's a really, 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 really great story, just following the Joseph Campbell kind of hero's journey formula. But here's what makes it special. Here's what makes it different than The Hobbit or than Star Wars or than other stories that kind of follow a hero who gets a call, a divine sort of call, and goes on a journey and then faces a villain and then, you know, all this kind of stuff. 
what makes it different, and I think you should prepare yourself to be astounded by the great literary insight that's about to come out of my mouth, go into the microphone, travel through the microphone cord, into the computer, and go through the internet, and then come out into your ears. What makes this book different, I think, from the standard hero's journey story, of which we've all seen thousands, is it's about rabbits. It's about stupid rabbits. And I'm actually not being funny when I make that point. Like, I think one of the main things, you know, we spend so much time talking about, we don't always give them the high school textbook names on this podcast, but we talk about plot, we talk about character, we talk about theme, we talk about style, all this kind of stuff. One thing that I suppose we talk about a lot, incidentally, but we don't often pull it out and hold it up as its own sort of literary artifact to look at is setting the particular world that this story is inhabiting. And in this case, it's really important. It's really important, actually, because having it be rabbits is a large part of what makes this book such an exciting take on an old formula. Uh, Let me come at this a different way to kind of just explain what I'm talking about. I love genre fiction. Eh, Sci-fi, romance, horror, detective, anything that fits a genre. I'm fascinated by it. Because the thing that genre fiction always has to do is it has to follow these really rigid formulas and it has to always be striving to make those formulas feel fresh again. So you read a thriller, you know, like a Jack Reacher novel. Jack Reacher is going to come into town and he's going to meet some bad guys and he's going to get on to what they're doing and then he's going to beat the crap out of these bad guys and then he's going to go on drifting on to his next adventure and, you know, there'll be a pretty lady or that'll kiss or something in there. Like the same things are going to happen in every book. Sherlock Holmes, you know, somebody's going to come, he's going to be playing his violin, he's going to be doing his heroin or whatever he does and they're gonna they're gonna be like mr holmes i have a thing for you and he's gonna be like oh you just came from the the lorry in the mud did you and they'll be like what how did you know i came from the lorry in the mud and ah well my dear fellow you had flecks of red dust on your collar and then watson will be like i'm a moron and sherlock will be like i'm explaining things and then they'll go and they'll gather some clues and then you know it's going to very rigidly adhere to this formula. And so it's never about, with any kind of genre fiction, actually, it's, it's, it's never about what's being done. It's about how it's being done. You know, it's like, it's like going to a pizza place. Well, I know that they're going to have a wheat-based dough, and there's going to be a tomato sauce, and there's going to be some mozzarella, and there's going to be some, like, meats or something on there. I know everything that they're going to do. And the only question is, how are they going to do it? What are they going to do to distinguish it? And, and of course, some pizza places are like, we put mustard on it. <laughs> Sorry, I think, I think my analogy maker might be a little broken today, but that's okay. I don't think it's broken. It's just, it's just bent. It's a little bent. So 
uh, some pizza places will be like, we did something crazy. You know, we, we put chocolate ice cream on your pizza. And you're like, okay, well, it's not really a pizza anymore, is it? And then some pizza are like pizza places are like, here's your pizza with cheese and pepperonis. And you're like, okay, thanks. I mean, I could get this in a frozen pizza from the grocery store. And then some pizza places, and this is this is the best, is like, here's your pizza. It's got cheese and pepperonis. And you're like, wow, this is giving me the experience of eating pepperoni pizza for the first time. Again, even though I've had literally thousands of pieces of pepperoni pizza throughout my life, I am having the experience of enjoying delicious pepperoni pizza once again, because they have managed to change it up just enough or to put their own little spin on it just enough that it is at once very recognizable and very foreign. It has all the comforts of being home and all the delights of being abroad. That's what you want from any good piece of genre fiction. You want it to be instantly recognizable, to be checking boxes, and that gives you pleasure, right? Oh, the guy came in, he made a comment, and then Sherlock Holmes told him something about himself that he wasn't expecting to hear. Sherlock Holmes does that every time. He he is so far beyond us in his powers that it's not even really that interesting to hear the explanations, although it, it, it does have its own interest. But I just like that box being checked. I want Sherlock Holmes to surprise someone by observing something that no one else could observe about them every single time. I do not want that formula to ever be deviated from. So there's that. There's just the the checking of the boxes. You know, I'm reading a romance. I want the two of them to fall in love. I, I don't want the guy to suddenly be eaten by zombies or something like that. In fact, I will feel betrayed if you deviate from the formula too much. You must check the boxes. I am reading because I want those boxes checked. Uh, I'm reading a Jack Reacher novel. I want him to beat up the bad guys. I don't want it to be the one book where he doesn't beat up the bad guys, where we don't check the box. That's really unsatisfying. I'm reading this book precisely so that I can get exactly what I expect. But I, being a bratty consumer of your content, I want it to be as different and new and exciting as possible. But but I don't want you to deviate from the formula. I want you to keep the formula. I want you to make me a pepperoni pizza that will make me enjoy pepperoni pizzas again. That's what I want from you. And I will take nothing less. I don't want not a pepperoni pizza. I also don't want a boring old pepperoni pizza. I want the delight that I first felt when I ate my first piece of pepperoni pizza. I want you to give that to me again. That Every time you sit down in a movie theater to see any kind of a adventure film or action film or genre film or horror film or anything like that, anytime you read a book that follows the beats of a standard sort of story, a story that you're familiar with, that is in fact what you are demanding of the author of the story. I want you to give me everything old and I want you to make it feel new. And if it feels old, I'll be mad. And if it feels too new, I'll be mad. And if it feels like it's straddling the line, I'll be mad at that too. I want it to be everything old and to feel completely new. I want to really be in suspense over whether Jack Reacher is going to beat up those bad guys. And then I want him to beat up those bad guys. And I want to be surprised 
by the fact that he beat up those bad guys, even though I've read 20 Jack Reacher books and he always beats up bad guys. Of course, the older you get and the more content you consume, the more books you read, the more movies you watch, the less you are able to sort of be (laughs) reinvigorated by these things, surprised by them. I mean, a pepperoni pizza is always good, right? There comes a point in your life where you've had a lot of pepperoni pizzas and the chances of someone reinventing the pepperoni pizza without making it not a pepperoni pizza are getting a little slimmer. And so the, the amazing thing, and the reason that I'm so excited about Watership Down, coming to it at this point in my life as a 30-something, whatever I am, mid-30s guy, is it really pulls off the neat trick of being completely old and being completely new. And these formulas are like, they exist and kind of in our Jungian, you know, subconscious mind or whatever. Like even a kid is kind of, kind of knows like good has to beat evil, right? The boy has to get the girl. Like we all understand that maybe in this decadent, stupid, rebellious age we don't understand that but i think not to get all gospel coalition upon you but i think we are built with the knowledge in our hearts that good has to defeat evil and that the boy has to get the girl in a romans one type of way we understand christ gets the church and we understand satan and death are destroyed defeated demolished by god so That being said, from the earliest age, we have these formulas built into us. And we just want to see them sort of recontextualized in a way that can make them new. And that gets harder and harder to do. You know, I've seen the hero's journey in space. It's called Star Wars. I've seen it in the West. It's called The Searchers. It's called every John Wayne movie. You know, I've seen it in a city. It's called Dirty Harry. I've seen these things recontextualized again and again and again so that they can be made new. I've seen them with superheroes. I've seen anyway. The really neat trick, and it's a very simple thing, but I think it's worth spending some time talking about. That Watership Down does is it makes it rabbits, and it anthropomorphizes them enough that you can kind of like get behind them as characters. Like they're they're not off-puttingly animalistic. It's not Call of the Wild where Jack London has this really nihilistic view of, of, of human behavior and of the animal that exists in all of us, and, and he just wants to rub your nose in that. If it is, if Richard Adams is just trying to portray rabbits, then he believes that rabbits are pretty human, right? Which works out nicely for this story because it means we don't have to put up with completely animalistic rabbits. We can put up with rabbits that feel like people that we'd like to get behind. But they also feel very rabbity and their rules are rabbity. The dangers that attend their journey are rabbity. And so that is a couple of things. Number one, it makes it so you don't really know where the danger is going to come from. You're genuinely surprised when the train takes out those bad guys. You're genuinely surprised by the fox. I mean, you kind of understand by the snare in that hippie Lotus Eaters Warren you're always surprised by the dangers, surprised by the challenges. You never, you know exactly where this book is going, right? Hazel's gonna defeat the bad guy and he's gonna become king. 
and then he's gonna find that through his hero's journey he doesn't really fit anymore and like frodo baggins he'll have to go to uh middle march where does frodo baggins go the entmoot what it were I, I i can't for the life of me pull it and, and nothing on earth could compel me to google this the gray havens there we go classic hero's journey you save the day but in so doing you lose something you sacrifice something mm, that's one of the problems with harry potter is that harry ultimately doesn't have to sacrifice i don't think quite enough in order to get his goal but harry potter's great i love harry potter i just think he should have had to sacrifice something more and it, it's not that harry had to die or ron and hermione had to die harry just had to not really fit in society at the end it's, it's that last, it's that stupid epilogue. It's that stupid epilogue, all was well. There needs to be a feeling of some kind of melancholy. And I think there especially needs to, this is a total tangent, but there especially needs to be a feeling of melancholy because we as readers are done with a seven book series and we feel melancholic, right? Like, oh no, there's no more Harry Potter. So the author kind of has to meet us there and be a little sad about it. But if she just has all the characters on the train, it's all is well. That actually doesn't help us as much emotionally as there being some melancholy because life has some melancholy now you can think of all kinds of books you know pride and prejudice that have really happy endings but those happy endings have to feel pretty hard-earned and anyway let's not go there my my point is just well my bigger point let me, let me actually close all these loops and return to my bigger point um, my bigger point is that hazel goes on a classic hero's journey but unlike when you watch the new Star Wars movie, even when a kid who's only seen so many movies watches the new Star Wars movie, unlike when you watch a Western where you kind of know, well, there's cattle drive, there's a shootout in the square at high noon. You know, there's like five different things that can happen that this journey can kind of be ex expressed through. You never know what this is going to look like because you're just not used to this world. And you don't really get that very often, even in pure fantasy books. Like, okay, I'm reading this fantasy book, so I don't really know how this world works, and this author's made up his own rules and all this kind of stuff. Eh, a lot of times it's still like a guy with a sword who has to fight humanoid monsters. A lot of times it's still like magic, which basically comes to raise shooting at people and, and mind control and telekinesis. A lot of times it's still guns. I mean, a lot of times it's still like the boy's going to kiss the girl, you know. We are actually very formulaic, even in the places where we're supposed to be fantastical. These people are boring and stupid. That's another valuable life lesson. This podcast will be full of valuable life lessons because Jake and Brandon aren't here to cramp my style. So, valuable life lesson number two. I have no idea what valuable life lesson number one was, but valuable life lesson number two. People are boring and so terrible. And so, even someone who sets out to write quote-unquote fantastic fiction will oftentimes be within their genre completely formulaic and so you actually experience very few stories where not only do you not know what's going to happen i mean you experience almost no stories where you don't know what's going to happen most of the time you know ah well probably good's gonna defeat evil probably the boy's gonna get the girl and let's be clear those are the only two stories those are the only two stories now, the evil could be yourself. It could be the world under the fall. It could be nature. It could be a lot of things. It could be existential dread. But there's only two stories, good versus evil. 
And will the boy get the girl? That's it. Only two. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. That's life lesson number three, kids. If, if there's any kids listening, do not let them tell you there are more than two stories. There's only two. There is only two. I hear, I plight my trough to this. So, ooh, what was I saying? Oh, I was saying mm, nine times out of 10, if not 900 times out of 1,000. I guess that boils down to the same thing, doesn't it? But most of the time, you know what's going to happen if you're being honest with yourselves. And we play a little game where we say, I don't really know what's going to happen. And that is part of the fun, and I don't want to take that away from people. Most of the time, in our hearts of heart, heart of hearts, we know how the story, what's going to happen. We just don't know how it's going to happen. But most of the time, we also kind of know how it's going to happen. You know, Star Wars, for all the fantastical world that it has, it's going to end with a sword fight. And maybe the sword fight will be with lasers. But it's still a sword fight. And maybe a, a aerial dog plane kind of fight. And maybe some people shooting lasers. Those are the, those are the three ways that Star Wars can end. There's not really anything else. Could look different. Could be here. And it's okay to do a genre piece where we even kind of know the hows, but we don't really know the hows. You know, we know they're going to use laser swords, but what kind of a laser sword fight is it going to be? And where is the laser sword fight going to be? You know, there's still a lot of lot you can do to kind of color in the margins and make something really interesting and really pleasurable entertainment. But one of the coolest things you can do is what Richard Adams does in this book. At least in my experience of this book, maybe this is just me being completely subjective, but I bet a lot of people love this book because it gave them this experience. You know exactly what it's going to do, but you go through the book constantly not knowing how it's going to do it. Like, okay, General Woundwort needs to be defeated. He needs to be dispatched. How? How are they going to do that? Somebody going to bite him to death? The rabbit's going to gang up and chew him? What does it look like? Okay, this chapter is going to have another adventure. What's going to attack them? What's going on? When there's a mystery, like that first, that, that Lotus Eater Warren, where all those hippies are hanging out, a kind of socialist satire, I guess, where they're, they're all willing to enjoy the good life at the price of death. That whole thing, you know? Joe, the Joe Biden's America. <laughs> a little biting political commentary there folks but yeah there's that sort of thing you really i mean don't know on your first read what the mechanism of doom is going to be there and when it's a snare for bigwig the coolest character in the book is really interesting and exciting and suspenseful and all that sort of thing like you this book is just one of the most successful books on a first-time read-through for giving you that experience of knowing exactly what a book's going to do, which is very pleasurable. You know, being able to... Let me, let me, let me go back to this point of we like actually the boxes being ticked. I, th I think we do actually like the boxes being ticked. We want, oftentimes, stories to follow formulas rigidly because when things snap into place it's like poetry when it rhymes when there's that really good rhyme and you're just like okay well i knew it was gonna rhyme oh oh it rhymed there your brain feels pleasure 
your brain loves patterns. It loves structures. God made it that way. And when it can recognize one and recognize it as being done with with beauty and with taste, it really likes that. Your brain really likes it in a good romantic comedy when a guy gets the girl or the girl gets the guy. Your brain is just like, oh, you did exactly what I expected. Thank you. I love it. Or when the good guy in the Kung Fu movie walks into the room full of bad guys and then he kicks them all (laughs) until they're lying on the ground bleeding. Your brain's like, ah, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. Awesome. This is great. Your brain loves predictable things. It it feels a lot of pleasure. It's built that way, right? We're supposed to enjoy our homes, our families, our jobs. You know, there's, there's all kinds of reasons why our brains, even for the most adventurous of us, aren't actually built to just thrive on newness and variety. We're supposed to love things that are old, things that are worn, and things that adhere to formulas and patterns. And not just the mathematicians among us. The, the most hippy-dippy story kind of person, like myself, is a rigid formulist, if that's a word. And you are, and your brother is, and your sister is, and everybody listening, we love formulas. Okay? So, just wanted to color that point in, because I, I think it's not just important that Watership Down does things in a completely new and unexpected sort of way. It's also really important that it does everything in the most predictable way. Oh, there's a bad guy. Oh, there was danger here. Oh, they hit the road and something bad happened to the old Warren. Oh, when your brain can actually experience both things at the same time, a shock of recognition and a just a shock in general, it's, it's, it's just, it's awesome, right? It's, it's the feeling of going to some foreign land and meeting your best friend there. Here I am walking through Egypt. I'm taking pictures with my phone of the pyramids of Giza. And oh, hey, it's, it's Jake and Brandon. They're here at the pyramids. I mean, is there any, could there be anything better than that? Than combining the pleasures of hanging out with Jake and Brandon, but, but recontextualized into this new environment that's, that's really cool and exciting and new. And, and also all of that happening unexpectedly. Like I'm standing outside of the pyramids and then uh, Jake and Brandon just walk around the corner and there they are. That's the best. That's the best. Complete surprise. Also, it's Jake and Brandon, completely predictable. They're exactly who I thought they'd be. You really, this book is just profoundly good in that way. Now you may be saying to yourselves, "Uh, okay, that explains why somebody might like this book reading it through the first time. But this is a book that people love, that people go back to, they buy the t-shirt. Why is this book so beloved? Well, for the same reason it isn't Star Wars is beloved. Because when something combines the pleasures of the old and new, of the expected and the unexpected, there's an additional pleasure to be gained from letting that slowly all turn into the comfortable and the expected. You know what I mean? You love going into your new house for the first time feels so fresh and new, but it also feels very housey. And so it combines this kind of perfect 
expectation with perfect surprise and delight. But then you also love the process of your house becoming your home. That's the kind of book that Watership Down is. It's got a lot that's very inevitable feeling. It's got a lot that's very surprising and exciting. And it's the kind of book that you can grow up with, grow into. It's very comfortable. And I think a lot of that has to do with the characterizations. This is a book full of nothing but Sam Gamgees, basically. This is just a book of Sam's. Every character from Hazel to Fiverr to Bigwig is a different shade of Sam. There's no Frodo. There's not really a Gollum. There's a Sauron, I guess, or a Sauron or something in general Woundwort. But really, this is just a story about stolid, solid, sort of British-ish, working class type people. And they're all really delightful. You like living with them. You like their sense of humor. You like the way that they bounce off of each other. You like the little snide comments that Big Wig makes to end the chapter. You like the fights that we have, that, that they have. You like that nothing feels much in the same way that the relationship between Frodo and Sam is portrayed in the Tolkien, not movies, but in, in the Tolkien books. You like that nothing really feels contrived for dramatic effect. There's no big breakups or lessons or sort of things that they have to work through together. It just feels like, oh, yeah, there's a group of dudes hanging out. It's very cozy while being very exciting and exotic and having all kinds of adventure. It's a very, in a way, in a way that uh, the only person I can really think of who hits this combo just right is Tolkien, and particularly in The Hobbit. It's very cozy the way that these characters interact. You know, <sighs> Bigwig, for example, you know, he's kind of the bruiser, he's kind of the bully, he's kind of the big, tough muscle of the group. But also, he kind of has the same cheerful understatement and good sense and just general cheer that they all have. He's just the muscular version of that. Fiverr is the sort of gay, mystical version of that. Blackberry is a version. You know, they, they all just kind of feel nice. And again, that, that might seem like a really anemic or obvious thing to say, but I, I don't think that you can overstate its importance to this book's staying power. You just like being with these rabbits. You like and are intrigued and are excited to, to, to just hear them talk to each other, to hear them figure things out. And that's another thing that makes this book fascinating, both to go to for a first time and also to go to ever after, is it's a book about process. And I, I think men in particular were made to work we were made to figure things out. We were made to examine structures and processes and things like that. And so any story that tells not just that something's done, but how it's done, the, the, the individual steps that have to be taken, and that features the characters thinking out those steps and making plans and then executing those plans, and here's what goes wrong with the plan, and here's what goes right with the plan. Any story that contains those elements I think it's pretty inherently fascinating. If you've ever wondered why people love the crime genre so much, I don't think actually it's just because we're enticed by evil and we want to know all we can about the dark side. Now, that certainly exists. But 
I think a lot of why people love crime stories and, and crime movies and stuff like that is just simply because you get to watch a carefully thought out process play out. Process is really interesting. The steps that people take to do things. And so if you're watching, you know, some guy rob a casino or this is how gangsters launder money, any kind of story that lets you follow the steps. It doesn't just say, we're laundering money now, but it's like, well, okay, you got to take the satchels here. Then the courier picks it up. Then they take it here. And then there's all the Chinese ladies and they're dressed a certain way. They're all wearing sunglasses and it's in this warehouse. And the reason that the cops don't come to this warehouse is because of it. That stuff is just, it really feeds us for some reason. And, and it doesn't just have to be about crime. It can be about anything. You know, it's, it's one of the things that can make Tolstoy at his, at his best, which all of Tolstoy is at his best, but a particular mode of Tolstoy really fascinating. You know, it's, it's a scene where Levin in Anna Karenina goes out with his sickle and he's doing the, the wheat or whatever with the serfs. It, it's really interesting to think about how they would get the wheat. Actually, it's really interesting. It's why it's, the New Yorker has made a magazine out of this for a hundred years now or whatever it's been. You know, how many of their articles are just about process? This is how a pharmacy got this drug to you. These are the steps. This is how General Sow's chicken became a thing. This is the way that it became a thing. These were the steps. This is the guy who had the vision for the thing. And here's the steps that he took to make the thing a reality. Here we're at the factory and we're looking at the steps. And so all the discussions that you'd think maybe on the surface would be kind of boring between Hazel and Fiverr and Bigwig and all your favorite rabbits. Okay, we've got a problem. Now what do we do? And one person says we should do this. And then another person or, or rabbit in this case says we should do this. And they decide to do this, and then it's this, and then the boat's here. That's just intrinsically fascinating. And like I said, the only theory I have for that is that we were made to work. And so processes and, and structure, the, the processes and structure going to work, are again, really interesting to us. Why else is this book so beloved and such a touchstone for people? Well, I can speculate about at least two more reasons without Jake and Brandon here to help me. Number one, Richard Adams does not waste time talking about things that don't interest him. He's very interested in this story. And I think that makes a big difference. I mean, how many authors find themselves stuck writing a story that contains things that they really wanted to talk about and things that they weren't so interested in talking about? This happens to Jane Austen all the time. It's, it's one of our complaints about her climaxes to her novels. It's always like, eh, that's not really what she was interested in. But she realizes she has to give it to us. So here it is in the most perfunctory way possible. And then they fell in love and everything was good. Stop bothering me. I'm writing this because I'm interested in the social satire. Leave me alone. And Jane Austen, one of the best authors that we read. But you can never really tell that some parts to her are more perfunctory. I mean, she says that. She literally says that. In Mansfield Park, she says, let other pens dwell on this and that. I only like to write about this stuff. <laughs> First sentence of the last chapter of that book. Let other pens dwell on misery and suffering. I'm just going to get to the happy stuff. It's like, actually, we as readers who had entered into this contract to 
appreciate and be moved by your story. We needed you to dwell on the misery there, Jane. But she's not interested in doing that, which is fine. But Richard Adams, you don't get the sense there was any part of this book that he wasn't interested in writing. Insofar as it could have had things that he wasn't interested in, he just, he just wrote a story, designed a story, built a story that didn't include them. You know, we just don't have to worry about romance. He's obviously, he's just not interested in writing women. And maybe he started with rabbits and realized that there wasn't a place for women in his understanding of the rabbit ecosystem. Uh, but I bet, if I had to guess, I mean, these, these kinds of speculations are so pointless. But having said that, let's speculate. I think the guy likes to write about dudes. He's not particularly interested in writing about skirts. And so he finds a story where he just doesn't have to at all. The females in this story are basically just a baby-making chattel. And you don't feel bad about that because it's rabbits. But we really just don't have to worry about them one way or another, besides as plot elements. And he does all that stuff well. But imagine a Hollywood screenwriter trying to break this story. We'd have to have the romance. We'd have to have the strong female lead. And I'm not talking about feminism or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not talking about that one way or another here. I'm just saying, how many movies a year do you watch where it's boring and stupid precisely because a studio note came down and said, you got to include this. And I'm like, well, that's not why I, uh, that's not, that's not what I'm doing. Dark Knight. Dark Knight, really good example, right? They wanted to tell a Joker story. They don't care about Maggie Gyllenhaal's character, Rachel Dawes. They don't care. They barely care about Batman. They were interested in Heath Ledger. Unfortunately, they didn't design a story where they could only talk about the things that interested them. And maybe that's not the perfect example. A really perfect example would be something not made by an auteur. I don't have one on the top of my head right now, but a movie where they just shoehorn in a romance or shoehorn in a bad guy or, uh, you know, over on Sanity at the Movies, we just watched Luca, Pixar's summer release. And there's this bad guy in there and he's so boring. He's just so boring. And it really feels like, I don't think that the filmmakers cared about this bad guy. I don't think they had something to say about this bad guy or about bad guys in general. They just wanted to have something to move the plot along or maybe somebody said, yeah, you got to have a bad guy. What is this, a Japanese art film? So they included a bad guy. Well, Richard Adams never does that. You never catch him writing about something that it doesn't feel like he cares about, he's invested in, he wants to tell you about. And that's not a given. I mean, with a, with a good author, that's generally a given. But I gave you the example of Jane Austen, where she's one of the best authors of all time. It's not a given with her. I don't think it's always a given. And it is with Richard Adams, though, in this particular book. You never catch him skimming over the surface of something saying, we just don't want to talk about that. We don't want to explore that. If anything, he's a little bit more interested in his world than I am, actually. Like, he really wants to pause for those stories about the trickster rabbit. He really wants to pause to give us the scenery, give us the world building, which is great. He's a good writer and he doesn't let it slow him down. The, 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 the pace doesn't become turgid. You, you never resent any of it. But he's actually giving you a little bit more than you asked for, if you're me at least, which is great. It ends up just feeling like there's this generous buffet and some of it I can sort of skim. But it's all there. It's there for me to get a little bit more when I go back for my second reading and even more when I go back for my third. And there again, very similar to Tolkien. A lot of world building. 
done very quickly, done very stylishly, and just packed into the cracks, into the crevices, into the corners. So it's there if you want it, but it doesn't stop the story from moving. And story is just everything. Story is just everything. A story that moves, a story that feels like it's going somewhere, a story with suspense. You can't beat it. It's, it's why, for all my complaints about Harry Potter and what doesn't work thematically and why it doesn't really deserve to be in the conversation for a great book or a book that's going to last or anything, it probably will last and work. Why? Because people just love the story of Harry Potter. J.K. Rowling's really good at plot, really good at story. And so it's like, playing all you want that the headlights are bashed in this car's got a good engine it's going somewhere and that's what a car is supposed to do and watership down very similar so i said there were two other reasons for this book's longevity and sort of beloved quality um one of them being richard adams is interested in everything the second thing i would say about this book is richard adams has a finely tuned moral sense. I started this podcast by saying I didn't quite know what to make of his moral sense. And that's true. It's true in the sense that I'm not quite sure what he wanted me to make of it. I get done with his book and he's held his cards kind of close to the vest. Like, what is the, the one thing that he wants me to take away from this book? Humans are bad. Rabbits are cool. Heroes are good. The well-built society is democratic. I'm not sure I could just narrow it down to one or even three. And if I did have three, which one would I think was the important one? He's very understated in that way. But there is a moral sense at work. And there's something that I don't think we really get in a lot of books. Because a lot of books, you know, just by nature of being close-up looks into human experience, they're very personal. But this book is societal. It's critiques. It's moral sensibility. is all social. And that's just really interesting. I mean, how many books that we've read on the booketing could you name that are so concerned with what makes a good society? I mean, in a sense, many books, you know, I mean, Jane Austen was kind of getting at it in a sense, but really, while her books have many rich ramifications for society at large, she's talking about people. She's talking about human nature, right? Same thing with Tolkien, same thing with all these people. But Richard Adams is really interested in what makes a, a good society work. And so uh, you've got Afafra, you know, this totalitarian regime under Woundwort. But then you've got just the, the wonderful portrait of, call it what you will, of complacency, of socialism, of... A group of people who are will it lotus eaters. Uh, call them, call it, take what you will from it, dear listener. But Cowslip Warren, this portrait of a society that's willing to trade death for easy living. As long as I can live easy most of the time, I'm willing to embrace my own destruction with the snares and everything like that. <laughs> what a wonderful little set piece that is. And then you have the more democratic uh, Watership Down Warren. And you've got Hazel's style of leadership, which is where there is no council, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety, right? It's, 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 it's very Christian. I'm not saying Richard Adams was, based on the evidence of this book, a great Christian or anything like that. I'm just saying 
he sort of understands how you can build a society. He understands the places where Hazel has to pull rank and the places where he has to sort of trepidatiously creep up to rank. He understands how his authority and his leadership accrue gradually to him. There's that wonderful scene where Hazel gets back to the Warren after making his big mistake in the book and almost dying. And it says they all crowd around him and start kind of pawing him and they're congratulating him and praising him. But he also understands on some fundamental level that they're testing him that who knows what would happen if they were able to just knock him down right now. That's an awesome, very thoughtful insight. Kind of insight you only get from somebody who has really thought about this stuff. And Richard Adams has obviously really thought about this stuff, but but he never makes a big deal out of it. He's never like, here's my lesson on leadership. He never has characters sermonize or proselytize or moralize. And that's much appreciated because all of those things are death to story and story is king. As we said, and who is the king of podcasting? I am, look at that, Brandon and Jake are worthless slime. They are not necessary. This has been a great Watership Down podcast. And I could do it again. I could, I could do another hour on Watership Down all by myself if I had to. And Brandon's fat and Jake is fat and everyone's fat and I am thin and I am beautiful. All should love me and despair and despair. And I'll tell you who shouldn't despair though is our patrons. People like Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds or Artful Anthony Dodger. Little Anthony's Cigar Store, that great man. The Immortals Chelsea Eagle, Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley, Lily of the Valley, Andrew Nestor, the Lovebirds, the Keith Master, don't turn it off, David's Mighty Men Trucking, John and Jill and Little Baby Max, Jay and Katie, we're cold and love cheese and also the other ones, including Toby Have Faces, Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth, Consul Prime Adam, Nathan Not Me, Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice, DJ Sammy G, Benny and Danny Superiors, Eric and Catherine from Yawn Window Break, Professor and Lady X, Lavender's Green, Dylan Dylan, Lavender's Blue. Lavender's green, Dylan, Dylan, I love you. Noah Constrictor, Merit, Jeep, Fair and Fragrant, Maiden, Chloe, Anthony who's cold and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese, Jujitsu, Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger, Rachel, 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 Midnight Nigel, and Return of the Jedediah, J of Rack and Ruin, Timothy the Writer, Dawn, Eric and Keith the Game Champion, the Kings who are warm and love bees, Maddie, 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 Sweet Jamie Sunshine, Tyler the Keeper of Eternal Darkness, and Laura the Keeper of Eternal Light. Cold Steel Cody, Declan, the Librarian Barbarian, Jabba Vadilla Bomb Diggity, and Captain Tennille, his mate, Saxophone Alex, the other Saxophone Alex, and Dubstep Danny, Ryan, the Terror of Texas, and Eric of the Cream and Crimson, who no longer are stuck in the cold. Please send cheese, by the way. Not cool. Immortal Chelsea E, I understand you were in Bloomington, and you did not say hello to Brandon. You thought he looked busy. You think Brandon didn't want to say hello to you? You think Brandon, that kind-hearted soul, that kind-hearted soul didn't want to say hello to you. For shame, Immortal Chelsea. For shame. Hey, we love you. We think we're we think we think we think you're great. But for shame, where was I? Where was I? Oh yeah, yeah. Ben Solo and Kylo Ren. John the Cosmic King of Cass. Matthew the Mind Flayer. And you're okay. Get your gun. Flight of Valerie. Thor Ragnar Josh. Stephen. Dot dot dot. Pegalodon. Christopher the Flower Hulk. Lady of the Crystal Lake. Ian, the death Marion, Lord of Death. A man in possession of an Emily is in want of nothing. 
And have we introduced all about the Benjamin? I don't think so. I don't think we've introduced all about the Benjamin. Well, maybe we do. I don't know, folks. I've done hundreds of these episodes at this point, and I just don't remember whether we've introduced all about the Benjamin at this point. But yeah, I think we did last week. I think we did. Welcome, Benjamin. Now, I've also got some business here that Emily, last week we called her the real M Shady. She needs a new one. She specifically reached out to say she didn't like that, which is completely fair, actually. She said she'd never listened to a, a, a Eminem song in her life. And that's fair. So, what shall we call you, Emily? What shall we call you? Are you a girly girl? Do you want to be called, like, Pink Unicorn Emily? Or are you more of a tomboy? You want to be called, like, Gun-Toting Emily, who smells like a baseball. <laughs> That's probably what you want to be called. Actually, come to think of it, you probably don't want to be called Gun-Toting Emily, who smells like a baseball. Because that'd be weird. <sighs> what does Emily want to be called? This is a great question. I think I will call you Nightshade Emily. The Haunter of Dreams. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. Nightshade Emily. Or M. Nightshade. Yeah, there we go. M. Nightshade. The Haunter of Dreams. That's cool. Okay, goodbye, folks. I, 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 I do, I hope I gave you some value today. I do genuinely hope that Jake and Brandon's schedules will clear up very very soon summer is a time of vacation jake's on vacation right now and brandon's just having a very very busy work life recently so have pity on them have pity on us have pity on this old sinner taking you through watership down one insight at a time (laughs) 